this week, a little bit of whiplash. We're going to go from Easter, so it's kind of like if you were binge-watching a show and you were about three episodes in and then thought, you know what I should do is watch the next-to-last episode and then come back to, like, episode four or five. That's, that's what we're doing. And so we were in Easter Sunday last week, and this week we're going to get back into our, our series in John. And so we're going to be in John 6 And so if you want to turn to John 6, we're going to be in verses 16 through 21. I'm going to read it here in a minute. Give me an amen when you get there. I love it when we're looking at it. Come on. Yeah, we got some people that want Bible competitions. You know, sword drills. Is that what what they were called? Sword drills? So weird, the names we come up with. This is your sword it, it's, it's really more of an instrument of gardening, but it doesn't sound as cool to kids, I guess. Anyway, John 6, verse 16 to 21. By the way, Jesus has just fed the 5,000 in the first part of John 6, and you can go back and listen to Olu's message about that. And so here in verse 16, picking up, when evening came... His disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were terrified. But he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then they wanted to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat reached the land toward which they were going. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Amen. I want to begin by situating this episode in John 6 in the broader narrative arc of the scriptures. Because I think it's helpful for us to not only read this text in light of what's happening specifically in this text, but John is doing some really important things here. It's five verses, and John is doing some tremendously important things here in terms of what we learn about Jesus if we can grab a hold of it in light of the narrative arc of Scripture. So let's start with Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Darkness hovered over the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. John throws back to that, In chapter 1 of this gospel, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word became flesh. That's Jesus. And then goes on to say, and dwelt. Or I love in the message, it says tabernacled with us. That's the incarnation. Another way we might be able to say that is the word became flesh and got into the boat with us. That the one who hovered 
over the waters. The one who spoke creation and you and I into existence got into the boat with us. And so here, it's important for us to already see how John is connecting Jesus to both Genesis 1 and John 1. In fact, when we think about water in the scriptures, what we know is that water is often something that is formless and void. It's chaotic. That that's what it represents. And that the, the voice of God, the creative energy of God, the creative power of God is that God brings order out of disorder. That God brings order out of chaos. That God brings order out of what is confusing. And we see this again in John 1, that is God in Jesus enters the world through the incarnation that we see Jesus is entering an unordered, disordered world, a world that is not yet as it should be, a world absent of shalom, a world, in Jesus's case, under the boot of empire. This is not the world as it should be, and Jesus comes as one who is bringing his voice as a voice of order in the disorder, as a, as a new creation in the midst of chaos. And John wants us to catch these ideas as we see Jesus moving from feeding 5,000 to now walking on water. John's brilliant in his writing. And it's more than that. We, right, we see Jesus, he's, he's, he's leading us out of the chaos of these waters. And so it does, it connects to the creation story of Genesis 1. It, it connects to, to what John's doing in John chapter 1. And it connects to another really important story, doesn't it? It connects us with the Exodus story. And so not only must we see this text in the narrative arc in relation to Genesis 1 and John 1, I want to submit to you that we need to read this text in relation to and as a demonstration of what John had Jesus speaking about in chapter 5, verses 19 to 47. Now, you can go back and listen to Rob's talk on that. It was brilliant. But the quote I want to pick out of that for us is this. Jesus in that speech says, Moses wrote about me. And so if any of you were scratching your head like, what is Jesus talking about that Moses wrote about me? Because Jesus is saying some pretty important things here. Like, I'm a new Moses leading us on a new exodus. And not only that, I'm actually greater than Moses. Moses wrote about me. You search the scriptures looking for me, but you don't recognize me when I'm right here in front of you, and the one to whom you have your hero, I am the one he wrote about. How's John doing that? Well, he's doing that in part in the first part of six here, right? We see the bread, the multiplying of bread. What is that? It's the manna in the desert. It's the provision of bread in the wilderness. 
Jesus is the fulfillment of the rule of Moses in the sense that he's providing bread for the children of Israel in the wilderness. Here, we will see Jesus leading disciples across and through the waters. This, John wants us to capture, is the Red Sea moment. Right? The Red Sea moment. That This is an exodus. This is a leaving behind the enslavement to empire. This is leaving behind our enslavement to sin and death. It is passing through the waters to the other side, to the promised land. And so we see what John is doing here. This is Jesus showing himself to not only be the fulfillment of the rule of Moses, but to be the very source of life and creation itself. Jesus is leading us as a new Moses on a new exodus from enslavement to liberation. And so this, in these five verses, what we already are seeing is this is an act of God's covenant faithfulness towards us and towards the people of God, towards the community of God. And it is an invitation for us to enter into covenant faithfulness toward God. To be a part of covenant community. Are you with me? Is this okay? Just some theological background. What's going on here in five verses? Is it just like Jesus doing a miracle? It is. And we're going to get into some of this in a more detailed way. But what I want us to capture is maybe the bigger overarching story here. Can we catch the themes of what John is doing? Because he's up to this throughout the whole book. He's throwing back to these things. And you're even going to see this pattern often in the book. You're going to see Jesus do something or say something, and then actually be the demonstration and fulfillment of it. It's happening so often, right? You saw early on, you're going to see, we saw Jesus turns water to wine. And then very quickly is demonstrating that with Nicodemus and the woman at the well as being the source of new wine as being the source of new life. That it's not just that he's a miracle worker, he is the very source of wine. And so we see them doing it here. He gives a speech about, Moses wrote about me. He gives a good theological talk. But it's not just that he's a good preacher. It's not just that he can work miracles like multiply bread and provide for your needs. It's that he is the bread of life. It's not just that he can walk on the waters when the storms are in our lives. It's that he is the one who has power over life and death. He is the source of life. This is the community that we've entered into. This is who we are. This is our covenant identity, that Jesus is our source of life. Jesus is our passage through the tumultuous waters of wind and waves. 
It's the boat we're in. So let's look at some of these verses in more of a verse-by-verse way. Would that be okay? So verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down into the sea, or down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. It's so amazing to me that they go from the bread miracle down to the sea. That they go from the place of miraculous provision to a place that for us in a metaphorical way is the place of chaos, the unknown, the waters, the sea. And we love it, don't we, as followers of Jesus? We love it, the miraculous provision. And we hope that God's going to let us stay there, don't we? Like, if we can just live here the rest of the time, Jesus just keeps multiplying bread. I just keep eating as much as I want. Life is good in that place. But no, we've got to move on from there. By the way, isn't it interesting? Jesus goes to the mountain after that. We get our ministry and business plan together after that. Jesus gets into the solitary place with the Father after that. Which is a throwback to the desert temptations. And by the way, we often think of the temptations as a one-and-done thing. I think this is just the way we visualize it. Like at some point, Satan came to Jesus in the form of something sort of hurled three temptations, and Jesus was like, no, 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 and done. But I think actually what you see through the stories of Jesus is how these things, like your life and mine, keep circling back up in his. And over and over and over, he's got to deal with the bread temptation. And so he goes to the mountain. Anyway, that's a detour. So they go to the sea, they go to the place of chaos, and I believe that this, this is so important. This is just where Jesus leads us, to the boat, to the boat. Why to the boat? Because for John, the boat is a way of talking about and framing for us covenant community. And what John is saying is this, chaos is coming to your life. Adversity is coming to your life. Winds and waves are coming to your life. And when they do, it's really helpful to be stuck in a boat with some people. That we need community. That this isn't about my covenant with God. It's about our covenant with God. It's not about God's covenant with me. It's about God's covenant with us. And that includes me and it includes you. But it's about us and we need community. Now, here's the thing. Most of us, and I say most of us because I'm always slow to say all of us or all the time or every time, good words not to say to your spouse or your friends, you always, you never. So I'll say most of the time. Don't use that one with your spouse either. It's not. <laughs> or your friends. 
but we've all been hurt in community. In fact, I would propose, as someone who sits with people, the most harmful wounds, abuses, traumas, and experiences of our lives have happened in the context of community. Whether it's your family of origin, or something that happened at school, or a stranger. And even if it's a stranger, the question we have to work through so often is, where was my community? And so, so often, the most harmful and hurtful wounds of our life have happened in the context of community. And so when Jesus meets our need with the bread, we can receive that. When Jesus begins to lead us to get into a boat and go across the waters with others for really good reason, many of us are a little less certain about that. It's actually really scary. For some of us, it's triggering because it's where we've been harmed. We're like, look, dude, I was born in the waves and the wind. I am not getting in a boat with anyone and going across that stuff again. I'm not doing it. I'm not following you there, anywhere but there. I'm not getting into this mess again. It hurts too much. It's too painful. I know what happens there. And yet, a painful and inconvenient, I think, truth is that for most of us, the healing and transformation lies in community. Now, that doesn't mean we need, don't need to do some work first with therapists and pastors and, and all that sort of stuff, but we've been hurt in community, and it's an inconvenient truth, painful and scary but our healing and transformation probably lies there. And so it is the healing invitation of Jesus to invite us into the boat. And for some of us, maybe we haven't had those experiences, so, so we're good with getting in the boat, but we kind of enter the boat with some unrealistic expectations. We enter the boat thinking, there won't be any adversity here. We're Jesus people. And we're, I'm getting in the boat with some other Jesus people. And Jesus told us to get into the boat. And even though we can't see him in the boat with us, it's all going to be good. Smooth sailing. We're getting to the other side. We got a word from God. And then we get really frustrated. We get really disappointed. We feel really surprised, really hurt. In fact, I've sat with enough of us to know we feel very betrayed by this, that there's adversity in the boat, that there's external pressures that come against our community of faith, wind and waves, things we can't control. And I don't know about you, but I've done enough gospel reading to know there's 12 guys in that boat with really different personalities. What do you think's happening in this boat when the waves start coming and the wind starts blowing? Right? There goes Peter again, having all the answers, being the boss, 
knowing the way we should row, knowing the way we should get there, filling the space with his voice, first to talk, last to listen every time, completely unaware that anyone else might have something to say, something to offer. I don't know if he was really like that, you know, but can we speculate? I don't know, maybe the tax collector is like, this boat stuff is for fishermen. I don't even know how to row. And then John and James are like, dude, get your hands dirty. Because they're fishermen. I don't know, I'm speculating. Or maybe like, maybe someone's just doubting they're ever going to get to the other side and they're all just going to die because they're just prone to doubt. Who knows? What we know is through this text, they're terrified, and we got 12 guys with 12 different personalities all in fight, flight, or freeze. And how many of you know in your boat, in your community, there's a whole lot of different kinds of personalities in all kinds of different stages of life, in places of life. But so often we get into the boat for some of us, and we think that's not going to be a reality. But I would submit that that is exactly what Jesus is inviting us into because it's the sanctifying journey of those things. And that it's the healing journey of those things. But I'll say this, I think culturally sometimes we're just quick to bail out on stuff. I don't know if we stick around long enough to even allow God to do the sanctifying, healing work that God is inviting us to experience in those kinds of communities. And I'm not talking about staying where it's toxic. I'm not talking about staying in harmful or abusive communities or situations. I am not talking about that. In fact, if you come to see me and you share that, I'll tell you to leave. And I don't give advice very often, but I will say you should probably leave. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about the normal stuff of life where you get a bunch of personalities, in our case, in a living room or around a table, and those personalities start to emerge, and the external pressures of life start to, you know, squeeze on the the lives of of us until the internal things start to surface. And then we're like, man, I'm out of here. This is hard. But you can do hard stuff. You can. And if, if you will stick with it, I believe that there's healing for us. I think there's real relationship for us, like deep relationship. Because I think one of the most dissatisfying things most of us experience in church community, at least I know I did, is that you go week to week or day to day with folks and you feel like you're just living on the surface. And most of the time, we feel like we're living on the surface because we avoid all the hard stuff. And whenever it gets hard, we bail. And because we bail, we never get down beneath the surface and down into the real sharing of life. Because I'd have to be the one on the boat going, hey, guys, I know I'm a pastor here, but, like, I don't know how to row. Can someone help me? Can someone show me what to do? There's something for us there. 
community is the context that we mostly experience God's covenantal faithfulness. And community is the context where we most have the opportunity to be covenantly faithful back to God. The good and terrifying news is God has invited us to be in a boat together and to sail through the waves and the wind together. Is that okay? Are you open for that? And here's the thing. I can't promise you that you won't get hurt again. I can't promise you that it won't be disappointing. I can't promise you that it won't be frustrating. I can't promise you that it will be worthwhile. I can't promise you that it will be healing. But that is the invitation. And I think most of us know the isolation on the other side of fearing that stuff. Most of us know the aloneness on the other side of not entering into that stuff. And in many ways, that's the choice we have, to stay on the shore in isolation and to be alone, or to risk again entering into God's covenant faithfulness in a little tiny boat with a whole bunch of other people who, like us, all have their stuff. And then the wind and the waves are going to come so all our stuff surfaces. And we're going to have to work it out together. It's beautiful. But that's where true connection and true community is. By the way, there's a bunch of research on this that, that the folks most people feel closest to and most intimate with are the people they've gone through hard stuff with. Right? Like there's a whole bunch of research with this, like people who are, who are in the military and do crazy kinds of missions together and then come home and they actually feel closer and more intimate with their unit that they went through death sort of confronting experiences with than, than they do with their own families. Like they're, why? Because you're, you're going through a crucible together. You're going through something hard together. And I, and I think... By the way, that's why we work on our marriages. Because true connection lies in going through the hard stuff. It's why we don't bail on our friends. We work on our friendships. Because true connection is on the other side of working through that stuff. It's, it's, it's what we do. It's why we work on our parenting. Because true connection with our kids is going through hard stuff with our kids. How many of you know if you're a parent, you've had more connection with your kids sitting through the hard stuff with them in a calm manner than you do when you just try to shut them down? so you can avoid doing hard stuff. Me, all the time, I mostly know it because I try to shut it down, and I'm like, that sucks. <laughs> I feel less connected to myself and my kids. All right. Is this okay? Six nineteen. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. I love this. So often we feel like we're in community without Jesus, that Jesus doesn't see us, that Jesus has abandoned us. The winds and the waves come, and we're like, where is Jesus? Well, here comes Jesus. Let me circle back to some important theological points here real quick. Can I do that? Job 9.8. Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? Again, this isn't just a miracle of Jesus walking on water. This is Jesus telling you, I am the Messiah. I am God. Do you have the eyes to see Jesus 
as your savior, as your God, as the one who's worthy of your worship, who isn't just our friend, who isn't just the one who provides for our needs, who isn't just the one who longs for deep and intimate communion. And all of those things are true. But what is also true and what sometimes we become so casual towards is this is God. Walking on the water he created. He spoke into existence. Psalm 77, 19 to 20. Your way was through the sea. I love it. If we're going to follow Jesus, friends, we're going through the sea. We're not going around it. We're not evacuating from it. We're not living in sort of absence to it. We're going through it. This is God's plan. Your path through the mighty waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Again, this is John in his writing letting us know that Jesus is leading us through the waters of the Red Sea. He is ultimately the one who rescues us and saves us from enslavement to death and to sin. That rescues us from the way of empire. Who rescues us from the way of formless and void and chaos to shalom. But we get there by going through the sea. Here we see Jesus is the Almighty. I love this. I want to read Revelation. Can I do that? If I can get there. Revelation 1, verse 8. I am the Alpha. This is Jesus speaking. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Jesus is the Almighty, the one who was and is and is to come. This is important. John's not just giving us a little episode of Jesus doing a cute miracle. John is unveiling to us the God who is the creator of the heavens and earth, the almighty worthy of our worship. The one who is walking near us in the wind and the waves. Because this God created the wind and the waves. Because this God is the alpha and omega. In other words, this God who has the power over life and death is the first word of your life and the last word. Death has no power over you. The power of sin is broken. Empire can no longer control you with threat of death. Because Jesus, the beginning and the end, the first and the last word of your life and mine and of all creation is the almighty, the ultimate power. And then he says, well, he comes near the boat and they're terrified. Let me talk about terrified for a second, because they're terrified. And here's what a lot of us think, how we read this text. So I just want to go on a rabbit trail here. We think when Jesus says, it is I, don't be afraid, we often hear it in a rebuking tone. Like the disciples are in trouble for being afraid. Again, have you ever rebuked, if you're a parent... Or if you've ever had a friend, have you ever rebuked your kids or your friend for being afraid? Did it escalate their fear 
or did it soothe them? I want to submit to you that they have very good reason to be afraid. They're on a boat in the middle of a storm in an area that has a history of people dying because of these kinds of storms. They're terrified. And then their friends walking on the water. Also terrifying. It's okay to be afraid. We get into trouble when we allow fear to control us. We also have a lot going on in our life because we refuse to acknowledge and feel the fear. It's important that we acknowledge that we're afraid and allow Jesus to acknowledge our fear and to speak a word to our fear and to soothe us and to bring peace to us in our fear. Jesus isn't bringing peace to our fear by pretending that it isn't there. Jesus is bringing peace to our fear by naming it and speaking to it. By saying, I am. In other words, I'm the Almighty, right? This is a throwback to I am sent you in the, in the Exodus text. That's what this is. It's the, it's the same in Greek. I am whatever you need me to be. Whoever you need me to be right now in this storm, that's who I am. And I am the Alpha and Omega. I'm the first and the last word over this thing. And here's the deal. I love this, right? Jesus said this. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not put out. Jesus isn't rebuking us in our fear when you're feeling bruised. He's not rebuking us in our fear when it feels like our smoldering wick, right? The flame of our life is going out. No. He's coming as the Almighty, walking on the water, walking on the wind and the waves of your life and mine and our communities and saying, I am. Fear not. But it's because he's speaking to the area of fear in our life that we can receive God's peace and shalom. Even death, we don't need to be afraid of, amen? We don't have to fear death because Jesus has the power over life and death. Jesus holds the keys to death. And by the way, here's some good news. I think God's creation that we get to live in every day is amazing and beautiful. And it's not ultimate. And so often we act as though this is ultimate. It's beautiful. And we should enjoy it. It's been created for us to enjoy the beauty of. But it's not ultimate. There's a life after this life. And that this Jesus has passed through the waters of death into that place of life and now invites us to follow along through the waters of death into life eternal. Amen? The band can come. I want to end by reading Psalm 107, verse 28 to 32. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. 
the waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm and he guided them to their desired haven. That's where the boat is going, y'all. To our desired haven, to the promised land. We're passing through the waters to the fulfillment of our desire, to the fulfillment of that haven, to the promised land of God. We're gonna have to pass through the waters, but we're not alone. We're in the boat with some other people and we can work on our stuff. And when it gets real bad, Jesus shows up in suddenly kind of ways. And I don't have time to go there, but some of us need to recover our sense of suddenly. That at any time and at any moment and in any place, God can take us from where we are to the land. That God can take us from where we are to the place of safety and rescue. That God can take us from the place of lack to provision. And I know our stories aren't all like that and we all have places in our story where we can speak against that. But I think it's important that we recover that sense of any moment that God immediately could take us to our desired haven. So the last two verses of Psalm 107, let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. Let them exalt in the assembly of the people and praise him in the council of the elders. Yes, Jesus is the one who gives us bread in the wilderness and provides all that we need. And Jesus is the almighty God, creator of heaven and earth, worthy of our worship. And so would you stand as we respond with some worship?